Welcome to Promoting Healing of Pressure Ulcers in the Outpatient Setting. I'm Kathy Milne. I'm from Connecticut Clinical Nursing Associates in Bristol, Connecticut. And I'm speaking today with Kirsten Ryder from the Integrated Medical Group in Reading, Pennsylvania. Here are our faculty disclosures. I do want to say that this program is provided by the North American Center for Continuing Medical Education, an HMP global company, and it's supported from an educational grant from 3M Healthcare Medical Solutions Division. So we've got a lot to cover today in this hour. We're going to talk about how to get a comprehensive patient history and assessment so we can plan our care for patients with pressure injuries. And we're going to be looking at foam dressings and some of the features and how we apply them and how to apply them correctly in that outpatient setting. And we're going to also be looking at negative pressure wound therapy for pressure injury management in the outpatient setting. And of course, we're going to share our, some of our really challenging cases with you. So just to review, I know everybody here knows this, but in case there's somebody who doesn't, a pressure injury is a localized damaged area to the skin and or underlying soft tissue. And it's usually over bony prominence, doesn't have to be. And it can be also related to a medical device. So the real question we're starting to see in the literature is does angiosome occlusion play a role in this? And if you've read any of uh, Dr. Carolyn Fife's work and some of Tracy Yap's work, we're starting to think that some of these deeper tissue injuries may be not necessarily from pressure, although pressure may have a small role in this, but really an occlusion, an ischemic event that actually spirals out of control. We have to remember physics in pressure injuries, and we remember that pressure equals force over area, right? So if you have the same size item or block of whatever, and you put it on its side, you actually have a lot of area, right? And you can see over on the right-hand side that the pressure is redistributed well. That's kind of a lot how our pressure injury specialty beds work. Now, on the left, you can see if we take that block and put it upright and so there's less area, we actually have more pressure because there is more force. So we have to remember how we can use some of the devices that we see in our everyday practice to reduce pressure by reducing the force by increasing the area or the surface area that the skin is in contact with. We also have the concept of tissue tolerance. So that is when the integrity of the skin and their supporting structures actually will influence the skin's ability to redistribute pressure. So if you are, let's say, dehydrated, you, you, know, you might have a little puffy tissue, so to speak. And then when you're dehydrated, you actually have less tissue tolerance. So you can't redistribute any pressure well across that soft tissue. And the other thing that's really interesting is if you sensitize the tissue to repeated pressure over a period of time, you actually need lower pressure over that same area to cause breakdown. So here we see a lot of patients on their let's say their buttocks or their hips and you're and they're fine. They they've, they've been that way for months, but you know, over a period of time, they need less and less 
exposure to that, that area in contact with the surface to break down, all of a sudden they break down and you're going, what happened? What happened? What happened? Well, it's just physiology. You know, you've sensitized your skin and it's going to break down easier. So we have to think about that triad. So that's the duration of the pressure or the insult, the tissue tolerance and the intensity, because we know over long periods of time, low intensity can be just as damaging as that is high intensity over short periods of time. Okay, so there's been some very interesting perspective from a historical view here. I think probably one of the, the best articles that really kind of started to make us all start thinking about a different pathophysiological event rather than what has been historically known since, you know, blamed on Florence Nightingale, you know, the nurses aren't turning enough to something that's really evidence-based. And that's Geffen's first work in 2007, where he actually identified skin surface tissue interface. And he also could find that there's different pressure gradients along that vessel wall. And what was really key here is that he found that when you put external pressure, there was more damage deep inside at the muscle layer than at the higher epidermis dermis layer. And then, so he really was calling for a biomechanical approach to pressure injury prevention. And we've seen a lot of evolution with his work and others uh, since 2007. So one of the things he really kind of started to discuss was shear and strain, or shear and strain are really considered the same strain as is the biomechanical engineer's definition of shear. We kind of think of it a little different. And so really it's, it's the shape of, of what is putting pressure on the tissue will actually strain the tissue. So you can see over the right, you have something that's diamond shaped or, or arrow shaped. And as it points back in, you can see a lot of shear or strain down in the center and not so much further out at the tissue. However, over on the left-hand side, that block, the, the one kind of like we saw earlier, you, you do have some strain. It's a little bit less, but it actually will extend further out. Now, microclimate, the very interesting term, we've been seeing that being batted around for quite some time now. And that's the climate in the local region that differs from climate in the surrounding region. We all see this in weather patterns, right? I live in Connecticut and it can be raining in the Northeast and sunny and hot and humid in the Southwest of Connecticut. And Connecticut is a very, very small state. So what we're seeing is we have those same kind of microclimates on the skin, and it really is a function of temperature and humidity and airflow. And when you have an imbalance in your microclimate, you either have excessive hydration or less or underhydration. So underhydration makes the skin more susceptible to damage and cracks and fissures and an inflammatory response because the, the epidermis becomes very dry and stiff. And actually, we always worry about moisture being a contributing factor to pressure injury. Well, you know, dryness can be just as, as damaging. And I think we see that a lot on the patients who have diabetes, who have that autonomic neuropathy, and they have fissures and dryness of the heel 
And eventually, if you put that heel on a surface long enough, it will break down more easily. We see great examples of underhydration when we have people with leg dressings and they have a bunch of ABD pads and gauze wrapping. And when you unwrap it, their skin is drier than anything and they're cracked and fissured. Now, overhydration can be just as damaging. And I think we all can relate to that one because we see it a lot more often. Here, that stratum corneum gets really soft. It gets very permeable. You lose that transepidermal water loss. There's the loss of the mortar, I call it, which is the lipid layer that kind of surrounds each cell. And you actually have some of that tissue enzymes, the enzymes from the, from the wound itself, or the enzymes uh, coming up and destroying the more lipid layer and then causing more transepidermal water loss. And then you have this vicious circle. Now let's talk a little bit about temperature. So once you have temperature that increases, you actually will increase your blood flow and you increase your sweat gland activity. Now think about it. You have a lot more sweat glands and epigrine glands in your perineal area. And so now you have increased moisture, which will also have electrolytes. And if you've been on antibiotics, it will also have and contain some antibiotics. It changes the microflora of the entire region. So when you have increased blood flow, increased moisture, you'll get this humidity. And this humidity actually causes your skin to have increased oxygen needs. And actually, when you have increases in your temperature, you will also start to lose the adhesion between the epidermal and dermal layer. That can also predispose you to a pressure injury. Okay, humidity. So that's really interesting because I think we all feel when it's hot and it's humid, we're just feeling logy and just want to go slow. And, and that's our body's way of saying, you know, you're going to be probably not as, as, top notch as you should be. So take it easy. And so your skin kind of reacts the same way to humidity. So it actually increases your skin's susceptibility to injury and irritants. And it also changes your coefficient of friction and will decrease your shear strength. So when you have humidity, you have a change in the microbiome and you actually will start to proliferate candida as well as other things. But candida is what we see a lot of, and that's actually exacerbated if the patient has been on systemic antibiotics because a lot of them are excreted unchanged in the sweat glands. So you have a change in your whole microbiome of your skin. So I like to think of humidity as, as a good example of that is probably some of you listening today probably went swimming or, or went to the swimming hole and they had a bath, you had a bathing suit on and then you went to the playground and you tried to go down the slide and you would, you know, kind of inch down, you know, because you had a high coefficient of, of friction. Now, for those of us who didn't have that opportunity, if we've gotten into a car with vinyl coverings and our shorts or pants are a little bit wet, again, we find ourselves sticking. And so that is what humidity will do to your skin when it is uh, high. So there are a lot of sources of humidity, and I think we're all very familiar with them, wound exudate being one of them, incontinence being another one. But you know, a lot of times we see a lot of elderly people, they're, they're cold all the time. So they're wearing you know, three pairs of undergarments 
all of which are not cotton, don't breathe well, they're nylon, they're trapping heat. And then you add on the incontinence. I have this one man who wears three pairs of boxer shorts and two t-shirts and I think two flannel shirts because he's always cold. And when you undress him, he's just just one moist piece of, of skin on his back and his bottom. So we also have transepidermal water loss. Once you break that skin barrier, you're going to actually have increased transepidermal water loss. And you also have to think about the kind of body-worn products these patients may be wearing. Are they wearing a very occlusive brief? Are they wearing something that has plastic on them and that will increase their humidity because it will trap the moisture? Now, is pressure injury top down or bottom up? So again, I've kind of talked a little bit about friction. Friction is that force that resists motion when the surface of one object contacts the other, kind of like this. And then there's a coefficient of how much friction are you generating, which, and remember, friction will generate heat. So if a skin tear is a high frictional force, and if you're um, walking on ice and you quick slip, there's like no friction whatsoever. Nothing's keeping you there. So here's a great example of a frictional force in a patient of mine. He's a 45-year-old male with a morbid obesity. The problem with him is he was born with a hip dysplasia, never got it fixed. And so he, he walks really with a limp. And so he walks up. So now it didn't bother him when he was a kid, but now that he's morbidly obese, you have friction of his buttocks when he walks forward. So he kind of lunges. So you have that forward motion. It's hot, it's wet, there's humidity in this area, and he certainly breaks down. So really, I guess the question we all want to ask is how does one get a pressure injury? Well, I always like to look at it again from Dr. Geffen's point of view as a biomechanical issue, but really it is a deformation of the tissue and the cells in the patient's body. Now, what the problem is, is that physiologically, if you take the pressure, put it on, take it off, do you actually get a reperfusion injury? And you also may have lymphatic dysfunction. And that's because the lymphatics were also occluded temporarily. They're now trying to clear all the cellular and other tissue debris out of the injured area and they get clogged. Now, uh, there are some clinical implications of shear and friction, which is why we should be looking for this and trying to do decrease it as much as we can. So remember, we saw that block, you know, the farther away you are, you will see less and less shear. Uh, you'll see a lot more shear when the object is pointed and there's deeper deformation. So if you have compression, it will add some shear strain. So anything that compresses the tissue will add shear strain. So again, what your microclimate is, what your stiffness of your skin is, how old you are, what kind of skin you have, um, will actually impact the microclimate and the soft tissue deformation and your ability or inability to shear. And the shape of the bone makes the difference. So the work of, of Sonnenberg and Spriegel is they were doing uh, wheelchair seating evaluations and they were looking at patients with CAT scans 
And they actually noticed that patients actually have three types of coccyx shape. There's just kind of like a spoon shape. There is a um, really a J shape, and then there's a pointed shape. And actually the way you're formed, the way your coccyx is formed actually will deform or shear your deep layers of your tissue differently uh, amongst each other. So we don't normally CAT scan everybody because it's too expensive, but clearly if we had a way to figure out if you're J-shaped or pointed shape rather than spoon shape, you may be at more risk for having greater shear. Now, again, if you have a friction coefficient that's really high and it's in the center of that compression uh, force, then you're going to have a lot more shear strain. And that friction holds that compression in place. When it goes, it, it moves a lot more tissue and causes a lot more damage. So we do know that shear, a little bit of shear will actually occlude the vascular supply in the muscle. You don't need as much shear as you do pressure. So shear is much more damaging than pressure in all of it. So cell deformation, really, really bad because once you deform the cells, they break open, they leak everything that's inside them and start that inflammatory cascade. And so you can see here, this again is from the UK consensus document, and it's a great schematic here. You have damage to your cells, the cell membrane ruptures, everything comes out and causes cell death. Once you have cell death and it's within a few minutes, uh, so it happens really quickly, then you start this whole process, this vicious cycle of ischemia because now you have put everything into the interstitial tissue, you're blocking up the lymph nodes, you have no blood flow because you've essentially crushed everything. And so if you just have ischemia without cell death, so such as a blood clot, it actually takes a much longer time to cause damage to the surrounding tissue rather than when you have cell rupture. So again, ischemia is several hours to cause deep tissue uh, injury and uh, tens of minutes when you have cell deformation. So the role of the lymphatics, again, they're the ones that are supposed to pick everything up and take it away and filter it into the, those lymph nodes, right? But they're affected by pressure because they too, again, as I said earlier, are uh, occluded. And so it prevents the, the formation of lymph and is the clearance of lymph. So now if they're not working, you're going to have increased necrosis and inflammatory response because you can't clear all that stuff away. That's when you start seeing the classic signs of heat and redness, swelling and pain. And you don't unfortunately see it right away. And that's the problem. And it's rarely just about just pressure, just shear, just friction, just moisture. It's really a combination of all of these things. Everybody should take their fist and like put it straight down, right? Put it against your, your desk that you're watching. That's pressure. That, that kind of hurts. Now, if you go like this, that shearing, because now you have gravity pushing down, you have friction, and you're actually kind of taking those tissue layers and moving them apart. And if you add moisture to that, it's going to take not nearly as much force to uh, accomplish that pain that you just did to yourself. So let's talk a little bit about medical device pressure injuries. So they're really the 
big thing now. And when we start really looking at some of the data, we're seeing that uh, typical pressure injuries are decreasing, uh, but our medical device pressure injuries are increasing. And a lot of that is because our patients are a lot sicker. We're using a lot more devices. And clearly in the last 18 months or so with COVID, we are actually putting people in positions that we haven't put in patients in a routinely for quite some time. And we have to have all these devices to keep their circulation and their ventilation and their kidneys intact, right? So we're seeing a lot more of these. I think we've always recognized that we've, we've been having problems with oxygen masks, but this is really compounded with COVID. So this is really a micro burst of, of what we're really seeing when we see something on the sacrum. But it, it, it's much more profound because not only you have a, usually have a small space of which things happen. So you, and have a device that you can't either uh, change the sh shape or size or your tissue, by the way, will change its shape because usually a lot of these people will get edematous and then the edema actually will change the shape and the pressure redistribution on the tissue it's touching and therefore it starts to break down. So once you have cell deformation, again, you have the device-related pressure injury, you can have vessel occlusion from a lot of these devices. And then a lot of these devices are respiratory in nature. So there's airflow with usually with a lot of humidity, you get moist or the patient's very ill and they're sweating. So you have a lot of moisture that way. Again, your temperature will increase. You actually have inflammation and your coefficient of friction increases. A lot of us don't have a lot of sizes to choose from sometimes when we were trying to put a device on a patient. A lot of our organizations will only carry two sizes. We do the best we can, but it doesn't fit the patient well, right? Additionally, sometimes we're very nervous that the patient's going to pull things off. So we may think put things a little bit tighter. And some of these things we can't control because we're proning them and we're proning them for 18, 20 hours. Again, your tissue tolerance is going to change, especially if you're acutely ill, because your perfusion may be changing, your uh, intravascular and eventually your interstitial tissue is going to change. And so um, that changes you know, hour to hour sometimes. So that uh, will change your tissue tolerance. So actually, when you start looking at the medical device related injury uh, rates, you can see that overall trends, things are going up and especially in intensive care units. But we're also seeing things in other places, including neonatal device related pressure injuries I did a study back way back in 1997, uh, looking at necrotic tissue. And actually that was in a long-term care setting. And almost half of my patients from that study actually had a medical device related pressure injury. But now we're finally recognizing that it is a subset that we can try to control the best we can. So again, that device shape will impact your deformation. So usually if you have a hard material at a small contact area, we usually find that over a tissue ratio of uh, one to one to bone or cartilage, usually your nose, maybe your cheeks, your cheekbones, your periorbital area. You can have large contact areas, also hard material, or 
a device that will reduce your tissue tolerance. And that's usually something that's got humidity in it. So we know that there's a difference between them in terms of their etiology. Both are from a physiological response, right? And they both have soft tissue damage and perhaps muscle damage. And uh, we have extracellular matrix damage, blood vessel, muscle, lymph vessel issues. But one is caused by the external forces of body weight. And the other one is an external force of a non-human object. And it's usually a medical device, but it can be other things. And again, we're seeing more of those in the intensive care unit. So we have to try to do the best we can and urge our purchasing people to order many, many sizes, even though it may will increase your SKUs, it will be hard on your unit because you don't have the room, but we need these flexibilities to prevent these injuries. Now, one of the things we need to do is start holding manufacturers accountable for their devices and see if they have gone through uh, pressure redistribution testing. And I think we'll, we'll start to see that in the next couple of years. So let's talk about the role of dressings in my biomechanics, because a lot of us think, well, it's just a dressing. Well, actually dressings can do a lot for friction, shear, moisture, and pressure. Now the ideal pressure uh, dressing for pressure injury prevention is really something that's got a low coefficient of friction, right? And the friction that is there, it should not transmit that to the patient. It's got to stay on. If it doesn't stay on, then it's not going to be helpful for you or for the patient because you can't be in there all the time trying to put it back on. It has to be able to be responsive to that microclimate, right? Because that microclimate is so important to how that tissue tolerance responds. And it's got to absorb anything that might be there. So dressings really started coming about in terms of the data in terms of pressure injury. So 1998, we started seeing people doing studies on um, hydrocolloids and they looked at nasal bridges. And then in 2006, we had this revelation of, of having foam dressings. And I know people think foam dressings have been out there forever, but they really haven't. And so we started seeing studies done in the, in the sacral pressure injury area, as well as in 2007, when they started to infuse ceramide into the hydrocolloid to see if that could reduce pressure injuries in the trochanter. We actually started seeing transparent films and hydrocolloids again, looking at pressure injury prevention in 2008 on the nose. And then in 2011, we started to see this thing called hydrocellular foam, and we started seeing those on the heels. Again, more data in terms of the polyurethane foam and the hydrocolloid on the nose. Pressure incidents with these studies range between 3.6 and 60%, which is a lot. And then what we started seeing is the introduction of silicone foam in 2012, kind of really a big, huge game uh, changer. We started seeing some great data in terms of prevention in 2012, those studies um, have been well distributed. And then more studies again in 2013, again, looking at the sacrum, but also the heel. And now look at that pressure injury incidence, one to 3.1%. So dramatically decrease using silicone. So again, we've already seen this slide before, but 
you've got to think about what silicone does in terms of regulating microclimate and temperature. So silicone is really a silicon and oxygen chains uh, with organic groups attached. And then it comes in different consistencies and different tech. So we all are using some kind of medical grade silicone in our medical devices and in our dressings, but all silicone is not created equal. It comes in different tacks and their ability to repel moisture. So you really want to kind of figure out how good that silicone is. Is it soft? Is it tacky? Does it stay with dry surfaces, but not stick to wet? And that's really the the benefit of the silicone and why it really took off in terms of addressing is because it was a really reduced pain because the silicone repels water. So it didn't stick to the wound bed. But when you're talking about pressure injury prevention, you want it to stick to intact skin. Again, you want that low coefficient of friction. You want to absorb that microclimate and you want to be able to redistribute pressure. So um, here is, I, I know everybody's going to think, what is this? This is a venous ulcer and you're talking about, you know, pressure injuries. Well, one of the things I like to think about is a lot of these posterior calf venous ulcers actually have a, an element of pressure. So here we're telling our patient, we're using compression, we're saying, elevate your legs, elevate your legs, elevate your legs. So they go home, they sit in the recliner. And where is that posterior calf sitting? So you have just a small area, right? And you have a lot of force because these legs are big and they're heavy. So remember pressure equal force over area. So even though you have venous insufficiency as your underlying issue, you will have an element of pressure there that needs to be addressed in those posterior calf wounds with venous stasis. And as you know, these patients don't move very well. So there is some friction, there is some shear, there's definitely a lot of moisture. So the silicone adhesives, so they will have a low surface tension. And actually, as compared to the acrylic adhesives, their adhesive is consistent over time where the acrylics actually act a little bit differently. And what you want to see is when you remove it, that peel force. So when you peel it up, how much skin are they taking with it? How much epidermal cells are they taking with it? The nice thing about a silicone adhesives is that they can be repositioned if needed. They don't stick well to plastic. So acrylics, as you can see here, actually they kind of melt in over a period of time. So they do have a very high peel force. And you can see in that bottom right slide how, how it really will add tension to the skin because it's kind of melted in into those gaps. And so when you're pulling it, you're pulling a lot of skin cells off. So we do know from the evidence that a five-layer or multi-layer foam sacral dressing is a, an, an important component and effective component of a pressure injury protocol. And using a prophylactic multi-layer foam applied to the heels, and we now know sacrum actually goes a long way in preventing pressure injury. We also see since COVID, as Dr. Geffen has done some more work with multi-layered foams uh, with Dr. Pico. And 
what you can see here are the pressure mappings of the multilayer foams on the forehead and the chin. And you can see when you put the multilayer foam on, how you reduce that soft tissue strain by 71% on foreheads, 92% on the chin. So dressing construction really matters, right? So KCI 3M actually has a silicone foam dressing, and this is how it's constructed. So you have a silicone contact layer. So that's against the skin. And again, this silicone actually some really good tack against dry skin. Silicone will not stick to the wet skin. But what's different about this dressing from a lot of the other foams out there is that it actually has a super absorbent layer. It's got a foam layer, so it will wick things away. And then you have this super absorbent layer. So you're going to be able to hold a lot of drainage. You actually then have this moisture control layer, which actually will take this, this transepidermal water loss, this water vapor. And actually, because you have this breathable, low friction outer coating that will take that transepidermal water loss and that moisture vapor and take it to the outside environment, right? So you also have these blue tabs and they actually make it really easy to place onto the patient. Not all silicones are the same as we talked about before. So you can see on the left on how much epidermal cells are being removed on the 3M product, you actually have very little on another competing product. You can see how red that slide is. It's a lot. And same with the absorption capabilities. You actually see, the, even though you have the same amount of drainage, this uh, wicking up and then the super absorbent layer can actually hold a lot versus uh, another foam, the competing product, which actually just spreads out and then just kind of stays on the skin and makes your moisture microclimate even worse. You do have to remember that all these multi-layer foams are unlikely to be cuttable, including the 3M products. So there are a number of different shapes and sizes that you can use to meet your needs. I like this picture because a lot of times I call it the poop shoot, right? If you don't get deep into that, that natal cleft or sacral cleft, depending on what you call it, you are going to get any incontinence to come up from the bottom and it will sit in the base of the sacral cleft. It, if you have a wound there, it will contaminate it. So you need to be able to get a, a really good fold into that area. So what we do know that pressure, shear, friction, and microclimate will interact. So you need a dressing that's going to actually address all of those. And Remember, if you do not learn from history, you're going to repeat it. So make sure you do a complete history and physical and look for those things, weight loss, incontinence, critical illness, dog days. I call them dog days, but they're down on the ground days. And if you have immobility that will cause pain, you got to address that pain because they're not going to move. Anemia. We know that people who are hypoperfused are more apt to get pressure injuries. So. We also find if you've had a history of radiation, especially to the pelvis, whether that be from uterine cancer, ovarian cancer, prostate cancer, you can, you're more prone because you've actually changed the cells and the skin and the stiffness of the skin in, in that area. But the caregivers, you know, ask them a lot of questions. They can tell you a lot about that patient. 
do your physical exam. You can use your risk assessment score, look at those comorbidities. But I like to look at the environment. What are they sleeping on? What are they sitting on? Where are they moving to? How do they transfer? Are they actually lifting up or are they just dragging their bottom across? What kind of offloading devices do they have? Get a PT and OT eval. Get a dietitian eval. It makes a huge difference in terms of your outcomes. So is there anything else in your physical exam, i.e. a medical device? Maybe the patient's been lying on their cell phone because they don't want to lose it, right? And then look for specificity. Boy, when they pull that leg up, it really causes a lot of friction, a lot of shear, and a lot of pressure. Don't forget to assess the system. Just because you have policies and procedures in place, you have to both educate, your staff will turn over, there may be new evidence, which means you'll have to rechange your policies and procedures, and you have to look at the supply chain issues. And then again, the patient system interaction, you know, pressure, shear, moisture, staff turnover, new evidence, are people doing what they're supposed to do? So here's a guy who fell at home. He wedged his leg between the grab bar and the sink. He was down on the ground for a while. Um, you can read his medical history here. So in this phase, what we did is we had to debride him, right? And he, this was really a pressure ulcer because of the way of the history the way he presented. Now, uh, what we did was we did a debridement and here we are, we put a non-silver-based gelling fiber into that wound. We covered it with a, a multi-layered silicone foam dressing and we put a, an elastic tubular bandage on it to provide some mild compression. So here we were doing moisture management. But on day seven, we had a little bit of a complication here. You can see the wound bed looks pretty bad. There's some purulent drainage. Now the POA was insistent that we not have any antibiotics. So we changed them over to a silver impregnated gelling fiber. We used the AG Oxisol, which is carousel gelling fiber. And then we did the multi-layer foam, um, the silicone foam and the tubular elastic dressing. Day 21, we really looked good. So using the foam dressing and doing antimicrobial local therapy helped and we were able to transition him over to negative pressure. This is an interesting case. She looks like a patient with a diabetic foot ulcer, but she's not. She's uh, had a CVA. She's left hemiplegia, she, but she is in, insensate from her CVA. She spends a lot of time, too much time actually in her chair with her foot just down on that foot pedal. And when she's not in the chair with her foot pressure on that foot pedal, she was in bed and her foot was pressing on the bedboard or the footboard. So we did weekly debridement. We did an alginate gelling fiber dressing, uh, the carousel. We did a silicone multi-layer foam dressing for that. And when the, we did really wheelchair and bed adjustments and she got better. So, and then here is a 45 year old patient with spina bifida. The wheelchair was too old. It was 10 years. She was, had a half inch gel cushion, which was kind of fused because the gel was no longer working. She was working and especially too much because she was spending too much time in her chair. She did have a lower loss mattress at home. Um, and we used a silver gelling fiber, the oxy salts and the 3M silicone foam three times a week. Um, this is not the best picture, but we also had wheelchair pressure mapping and adjustments made. She didn't change her routine. She wasn't going to stop working. She was going to go, you know, full court press there. We used the gelling fiber and the silicone foam for two weeks, then changed just to the silicone foam only on week four. 
And here we are by week seven. She's really doing well. Again, we had to return to the silver gelling fiber, the carousel AG, and continued with a, a secondary foam because she was getting a little moist again because it was getting a little hot and humid out and she was draining a little bit more. Again, multi-layer silicone foams have a lot of strong evidence in pressure injury prevention. They actually have bioengineering results. So that's really, really evidence-based showing efficacy against friction, shear, pressure, and microclimate. And I just do a little thought here. The most expensive dressing is the one that doesn't work. So when you pick one, pick one that's got evidence. Thank you so much. And I'm going to turn this over to Kirsten. Thank you, Kathy. My name is Kirsten Ryder, and I'm going to be talking about evolving technology for pressure injury management. So when we think about pressure injury facts, pressure injuries cost the U.S. healthcare system $9.1 to $11.6 billion a year, which is huge. The cost of the individual patient ranges from $20,900 to $151,700 per one pressure injury. The treatment cost for stage three pressure injury ranges from $5,900 to $14,840. So the treatment cost for a stage four pressure injury ranges from $18,730 to $21,410, which is huge you know, a huge cost to the healthcare um, community. The funny thing is I found a fact that more than 17,000 lawsuits are related to pressure injuries annually. Um, it is the second most common claim for wrongful death and greater than falls or emotional distress. So that's something that we really need to think about um, when we're caring for our patients and really think about, you know, pressure injury prevention and these numbers and what it costs us, you know, as, you know, a community. But since 2008, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has discontinued hospital reimbursement for changes related to hospital reimbursement for charges related to hospital-acquired conditions. So anytime a patient that's hospitalized, you know, develops a pressure injury, whether it be, you know, stage three, stage four, and stage one deep tissue injury, uh, Medicare and Medicaid will not reimburse the hospital for those costs. Another interesting fact is that about 60,000 patients die as a direct result of a pressure injury every year. So I'm gonna just kind of leave you with that thought. So I know Kathy kind of went over this, but a pressure injury, what is it? A pressure injury is a localized damage to the skin and or underlying soft tissue, usually over bony prominence or related to a medical or other device. The injury can present as intact skin or an open ulcer and may be painful. The injury occurs as a result of intense or prolonged pressure or pressure in combination with shear. So that's a lot of verbiage, but the most important thing to remember is that it's over bony prominence, or, you know, we really need to look at our medical devices to see if, you know, it's causing any kind of pressure. You know, when we, when we stage our pressure injuries, it's stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four, unstageable deep tissue injury, medical device related, and then a mucosal membrane. So when we think of pressure injuries in our patients, um, whether it be in an inpatient setting or an outpatient setting, we really need to look at the risk factors. 
So just going through some of these risk factors, I know Kathy really touched a lot on friction and shear. Nutrition is another big risk factor. You know, patients who are compromised nutritionally are at a higher risk for pressure injury development and they may benefit from a dietary consult. So whether it be inpatient or outpatient, you know, we should really consider kind of rounding up and collaborating with a dietitian. So that way our patients are at less risk for nutritional deterioration. Sensory. Obviously, if you cannot feel pain or pressure, you're at higher risk uh, for a pressure injury. Patients that fit into this category include patients with spinal cord injuries, a stroke, MS, neuropathy, um, and other conditions that compromise the ability to perceive pain and or pressure. Hemodynamic instability is another one. ICU, the ICU setting, now this is an inpatient setting, um, but critical care patients represent a highly specialized uh, patient population and the risk for pressure injury is likely to be different than the risk of another population. So particularly as it relates to perfusion and general skin status due to the severity of their illness, depending on what their illness is and the treatments that they're receiving. Um, it also includes the use of uh, vasopressors and infusions. So medications are another risk factor. There's several medications out there that can uh, increase the risk of uh, pressure injury uh, development. Just like I said previously in the ICU, vasopressors are a big one in the ICUs that we see uh, as clinicians that have the capability of increasing the risk of patients getting pressure injuries. Medical devices, um, there's tons and tons of different medical devices out there. Um, that, you know, when we're assessing our patients, we really need to look underneath those medical devices to make sure that there's not any undue pressure. Something as simple as, you know, a, a compression stocking or an IV site uh, can cause, you know, the littlest pressure injuries that can lead into something more harmful to the patient. Age. As we age, you know, our skin integrity isn't the same. So therefore, you know, and even in babies, the skin integrity is not the same. So therefore, you know, we have to be mindful of age and, you know, what, what that factor can do as far as causing a pressure injury. Moisture, exposure to incontinence can raise the skin's pH, uh, removing the protective acidic barrier. Fecal incontinence breaks down proteases and lipases in the skin structure and therefore leaving the skin vulnerable to breakdown. So we got to think of, you know, our barrier creams and, you know, other products that is going to help prevent moisture or limit the amount of moisture as well as our incontinent products and incontinent containment. Oxygenation is another risk factor uh, that we need to consider, especially in the intensive care unit for those patients that you know, may develop a pressure injury if their oxygenation and perfusion isn't you know, up to par. Immobility, patients who are unable to independently change position and are at increased due to the pressure exerted over the bony prominences, um, reduce of blood flow to the tissue, and then ultimately hypoxia, which leads to a pressure injury. And then lastly, temperature, 
temperature. You know, we think of, you know, all the different beds that are available that um, speak to microclimate. But, you know, with temperature, we think of humidity and the airflow next to the skin surface. And that can be an, an indirect pressure ulcer risk with, like I said, that humidity and not getting airflow between the skin and the surface that we're laying on. So all those are risk factors um, that we need to, as clinicians, kind of delve into and really determine like where the risk of the pressure injury is coming from. So when we think about pressure injury prevention, there's multiple avenues to consider support surfaces that offer pressure redistribution and manage microclimate, like I spoke to with the risk factors and temperature. Uh, we should be repositioning our patients at least every two hours while they're in bed or every 15 minutes to a half an hour while they are in a chair. Use transferred aids. This is gonna reduce the amount of friction and shear that a patient has when we're repositioning them, even you know, even if they're in the chair, we want to lift them before we move them instead of just sliding them over the surface. Use position devices. I know in the facility that I used to work in, our position devices were originally pillows. Well, a lot of times these pillows become flat and they don't offload our patients off their bony prominences. So therefore using wedges is a more reliable method of making sure that they're truly repositioned off their bony prominence. Like I had said with repositioning, while the patient is a chair, we want to reposition or shift, at least shift the weight, if not stand every 15 minutes, every half an hour. Use containment devices and barriers to protect the skin. So that way our acid mantle barrier isn't changing and causing moisture related skin breakdown and ultimately um, eventually, you know, a pressure injury. So we want to protect the skin from any kind of fluids, urine, feces, uh, so on and so forth. Use offloading devices, you know, heel lifts, you know, there's different kinds of things to keep the heels lifted off the bed, you know, elbows kind of, you know, offloaded off of surfaces as well. Assess nutrition and hydration. If you're not comfortable with doing that yourself, you know, there's always dietitians that we can consult. So that way you can get the patient um, nutritionally optimized. So therefore, you know, that's one less risk factor that they might have um, in the grand scheme of things to alleviate from a pressure injury uh, possible development. Check all medical devices and pressure areas. You know, sometimes, you know, what I've seen clinically um, in the past is that, you know, we check things, you know, on the arms and the legs. I find that the one that we overlook the most is the occiput in the back of the head, you know, especially when patients are wearing, you know, C collars. So, you know, if they, you know, in the inpatient setting and the outpatient setting, if a patient's in a C collar, if they're in uh, immobilizers, braces, splints, if they have, you know, IV devices for uh, infusions, whatever it may be, we want to make sure that we're checking those areas. So that way, you know, it's not causing any pressure on the area. And if, you know, there is pressure being applied to the area, then we have to offload that with, you know, padding the area, you know, dressings, whatever the, the situation may be and whatever we have clinically on hand. And then use prophylactic dressings over bony prominences. 
um, which I'm sure Kathy spoke to earlier in the presentation. When we have all those risk factors against us and then we don't put all those pressure injury prevention initiatives in place, this is what we're going to see. You know, we're going to see you know, unstageables, deep tissue injuries, moisture-associated breakdown that turns into some pressure-related stuff. So we can, you know, we end up seeing a lot of, you know, awful things. And these are the patients who end up, you know, like the statistics say, the, you know, the death because of pressure injury or that lawsuit. So we really want to be diligent in, you know, implementing those pressure injury prevention initiatives. So Kathy had spoke a lot about, you know, some of the advanced wound care dressings uh, that can be utilized to uh, prevent pressure injury occurrence, uh, as well as, you know, friction and shear. What I'd like to speak briefly to is, you know, let's consider negative pressure wound therapy also as a modality for pressure injury treatment. So, you know, unfortunately, some of these patients do develop pressure injuries, despite, you know, all the efforts that we put into place with pressure injury prevention, or they're at home and their families, you know, have difficulty taking care of their loved ones because they're immobile. And they, you know, either end up with us in the inpatient facility, or they end up with us in an outpatient facility. So, or at home. So what do we do to, to help with the pressure injury treatment? So this is my first case. This was a 37-year-old male with a past medical history of paraplegia due to a motor vehicle accident who was found down at home. He was down for approximately two days. Uh, per EMS, he had crammed himself a face down underneath a desk. Um, he appeared to have fallen in the kitchen and then dragged himself a couple rooms over, uh, which gave, you know, he wasn't able to give details of the fall, but he was complaining of pain everywhere. So when he came into the inpatient facility, a plastic surgery was consulted for debridement. So you can see here on the left side of your screen, how he presented, you know, pressure injury, probably a little bit of friction and shear noted in there because of dragging himself across the floor, necrotic, dead tissue, just an overall poor presentation. So day zero is post-debridement. So all that necrotic tissue was taken away. At this time, you know, in the inpatient arena, uh, we decided to do negative pressure with installation and dwell. So we added 70 cc's of normal saline, dwelled for three minutes and um, did that for every one hour. And then on day three, you can see here that we did 44 cc's of normal saline, dwell for three minutes and we did that every one hour. Now, the negative pressure installation and dwell is not an outpatient modality. However, um, we can start negative pressure with uh, installation and dwell in the inpatient arena and then progress them to standard negative pressure in the outpatient arena to therefore you know, get these patients moving in a, a healing trajectory. Uh, my second case, this patient is a 61-year-old male with a history of head and neck cancer, status post-surgery and radiation, recurrent squamous cell carcinoma in the larynx, squamous cell carcinoma left lung, status post-laryngectomy and tracheotomy with a recent TPF chemo two weeks ago, uh, presenting with dizziness and increased weakness for last week. He's nonverbal due to tracheostomy. 
uh, but can communicate with nodding and writing on paper. Patient does have a history of hypotension with blood pressure consistently low. So there's some of that hemodynamically instability. He does have a history of dizziness and then he's been falling more lately. The wife takes care of him at home the best that she can. So this was a patient you can see on day zero. This was an unstageable pressure injury on the sacrum. The presentation in the inpatient facility was that uh, the patient wasn't well enough to go to the operating room for surgical debridement. So installation and dwell with reticulated open cell foam was utilized to help soften and pull that dead tissue from the wound base. We used uh, hyperchlorous acid uh, because there was a significant odor. We dwelled it for five minutes over two hours and the pressure uh, was at 125. You can see on day two, how much cleaner it was. On day four, how much less necrotic tissue in the wound base. Once again, this is a case where the patient came into the inpatient arena, was too sick to go to the OR. We wanted to implement a therapy that would put him in the healing trajectory. So therefore we did the negative pressure insulation dwell with the reticulated open cell foam. So that way it would help soften that tissue and kind of pull it from the wound base. And then, you know, at day four, we can transition him and we did transition him over to standard negative pressure wound therapy. And we were able to transition him to the outpatient arena whether it be a rehab facility or home with negative pressure to continue to treat that pressure injury. Case number three, uh, this is a 78 year old female brought to the hospital by her husband because of a sacral wound. Patient is a very poor historian, is not able to provide any reliable information except that she is diabetic. Uh, the CAT scan of the sacrum revealed osteomyelitis. So this is a sacral wound. So you can see where that dark spot is in the picture is where the depth is at five centimeters. And then the stuff at the bottom of the picture is more superficial. So this patient is incontinent of bowel and bladder. And unfortunately we weren't able to contain that because of the location of the pressure injury. We just did a calcium alginate um, and applied to the wound base and covered it with a hydrocolloid. Uh, because of the incontinence issue. Then, however, we had consulted general surgery because of the incontinence, because we wanted this to heal because of the osteomyelitis. So the patient went on to have a diverting colostomy. At that point, we were able to apply negative pressure wound therapy. I did that to the centralized sacral where it was the deepest at five centimeters, the more superficial stuff. I used an advanced wound care dressing, encompassed all of it. The patient was able to go home with this dressing to treat this sacral pressure injury. So it was one of those things that we started in the inpatient arena and the patient was able to continue the same exact therapy and the continuity of care in the home setting with uh, visiting nurses as well. Case number four, this is an 85-year-old male with a past medical history of essential hypertension, type 2 diabetes. 
really, he had a lot of comorbidities, obesity, chronic uh, normocytic anemia. He was admitted to the hospital with rectal bleeding. This was actually a sad case. The wife took care of him and it just became too much for her to take care of him. So she brought him to the hospital. So this is how we presented. Uh, so this is an unstageable pressure injury. Um, patient was very unstable. He couldn't go to the operating room. There's several advanced wound care dressings that we could utilize for this, but as a clinician who has some of the true advanced modalities at my fingertips, I decided to do negative pressure um, wound therapy installation as well with the reticulated open cell foam so that I could soften and pull some of that dead tissue from the wound base with the hopes of, you know, being able to debride him at the bedside, which I was able to do. And then, you know, to get him moving in the healing trajectory, even though his body wasn't focused on healing the sacral wound, his body was more focused on just dealing with keeping him alive. So therefore, as a clinician, I had to come in and kind of implement things to kind of help him out. So this patient did very well, did the reticulated open cell foam, did the insulation and dwell, and then actually transitioned him to a standard negative pressure wound therapy from the inpatient facility to an outpatient uh, rehab, and then eventually home continued that therapy for uh, the pressure injury treatment. So you can see here, you know, when we think about medical devices, you know, negative pressure is also a medical device. You know, we want to pad the tubing. We want to make sure that it's not over bony prominence. So you can see there in the picture that I did some padding. So that way he wouldn't develop a pressure injury from the tubing from the negative pressure. So in summary, Pressure injuries can be painful. They may become infected and they affect people's quality of life. You know, we have, what was the, the data that I said earlier about 60,000 people dying of pressure injuries. There's a wide variety of treatment options uh, available for pressure injuries, such as dressings, creams, redistribution of pressure and negative pressure wound therapy. Uh, negative pressure wound therapy is a technology that is widely used and promoted for use on pressure injuries. So that is my summary. I want to thank you for joining us and I appreciate your time. Thank you.